As we near the end of our Women's History Month 2020 series here on The Workplace, today's program title is Women's London, the title of a book written by prize-winning Blue Badge London tour guide Rachel Kolsky. Rachel has written five books. Her latest book, Women's London, is the only guidebook that focuses on the women who have shaped London through the centuries and the legacy they have left behind. Women's London explores sites, statues, plaques and buildings associated with famous as well as not-so-famous women who have impacted London's heritage, culture and society. In the first of this two-part episode, we talk about the book, Women's London, the author, Rachel Kolsky, the women she discovered while writing the book, and those whom she discovered through loyal walkers on her tours. Who knows? If there is a hitherto unknown woman you know of who has made an impact on London and you book one of Rachel's tours, perhaps you too can add to the list of Women's London. Visit golondontours.com to connect with Rachel. Rachel, welcome to The Workplace. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Rachel Kolsky and um, my, I suppose you could say my, my career is a, is a, was as a librarian. I always actually describe myself as a career as a librarian. And while I was working as a, um, as a professional researcher in the financial services industry in, in the city, I was encouraged to go and study to become a guide. So for a little while, I was studying uh, weekends and the evenings, um, learning about London and learning how to present while working as a librarian during the day. And then um, I found I actually really rather liked it. And so I um, did another guiding course for Clarkwell and Islington. And then people said, go on, Rachel, do the big blue badge. And I said, I can't. I travel a lot for work. I'm very busy. But I did. And so for a little while I was doing, you know, weekends was guiding, learning more about London and during the week um, slaving away in the corporate sector. Um, just over 10 years ago, I decided I would jump ship and um, have been freelance ever, ever since. So that's really how it went. I think if people often ask me what made me go into guiding, but when I look back at what I was like as a child, I actually haven't changed. You know, so when it was playtime and the teachers say, go out and play, Rachel. I said, well, actually, no, I'd rather, I'd rather stay here and read a book. Thank you. And I think I've always, I've always loved London even as a, a young person, I've always loved learning and I've always loved talking, if truth be told. I found an old... Um, no. no. Absolutely. I found, an old, I found an old school report from when I was age 10 and the teacher put, Rachel is prone to chattering. So I just haven't changed. Here, here I am, walking and talking. I've been doing it all my life. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, people encouraged you to go do the blue badge. Tell us just a bit about that. So the blue badge guy, uh, blue badge, the blue badge for guiding is um, a badge for London. It's it's considered the top the top guiding uh, top guiding badge. Um, it's a very very intense um, course. Uh, to be honest, I found it more intensive uh, than when I was at college. You know, at, at university as an undergraduate. But of course, I was a, I was young as an undergraduate, and I'm maturer now alleg- allegedly. And I think you do. You do work and study differently as an older person. I'm, I'm, I've always said if I went back to college now, I'd, I'd be a better, better student. But basically, it, it teaches you about the history of not just London but England. Um, teaches you presentation uh, skills and makes you also learn about working in a public-facing uh, industry, which of course is very, very important. 
tell us what you're going to talk to us about today. Well, I thought what we'd do uh, today is talk a little bit about my last book. It was published um, in 2018, actually, to um, really to celebrate Vote 100. Some of you might remember that. It was a big celebration throughout the year of um, the centenary of some British women getting the vote. And so we're going to talk about how the book came about. And that's very much linked to me, to be quite honest. The book is very much an extension of, of myself. And then we're also going to talk about uh, women that I discovered while, while researching. Women, I thought I knew, let's put it this way, I thought I knew a lot of women and my book was already full, but you never stop learning. There's always more people to, um, uh, to meet. To, um, you can't see me because I'm on, I'm on radio, but I meet in inverted commas because you're not really meeting them, you're learning about them. And then the other group of women I thought I mentioned are women who I've been introduced to by people that come on my walking tours. Uh, one of the glories of walking tours and being a guide and lecturers I am are the stories that people share with you I, I'm, I'm it, it's lovely how people are so generous with their own stories and the stories of their families and through that the stories that I've discovered myself they grow and um, as well so it's the book is very much a thank you actually really to the people I've met over the years well, um, that sort of preempted the question I was going to ask about the book, which is what inspired it. <laughs> so this is like your fifth book. And um, so, you know, what came, what, what sparked, you know, your writing this particular book? Literally, and this is not cheesy. This is really the truth. It actually, uh, the people that inspired me writing the book are the people that come on my tours. So um, I'm very, very lucky. My walkers are very loyal. They've been on many, many tours. And as they came on more tours, particularly the women-themed tours, I do a whole range of tours around London linked to the history of women, working women, campaigning women, whatever kind of women you're, you're contemplating. Um, and at the end of the tours, and I'm going back some years now, people would say, so when are you going to write it in a book? And I'd say, but I'm working full time. You know, I, do I don't have any time. You know, it's a lovely idea. Um, but really, that is what inspired me. People really kept on asking me uh, to do it. And then I think really what happened was I published a book in 2012 and I really thought, actually, you know what? You did that. You did publish a book. You can do it. Um, so it was the two things together that, that finally made it a reality. Okay, so give us a, sort of an overview of what's in the book, what it's about, and then tell us a bit about... Um, the process of writing the book from sort of beginning to end so from the moment you decided yes I'm going to write this book you know how long it took you and that kind of stuff the book itself I guess is the basis of the book are the, walk are the walking tours so um, using some of my key walking tours as a, as, a, as a skeleton I suppose you could say what I then started to do so I chose the walking tours I was going to program in the book and then certain women and certain themes would jump out at me that they deserve more than the you know the five lines you know stop here and you know one two three they deserved what I call a feature so then but some of them maybe just got a box and so one of the things was you know what which women which themes would get a feature which elements would have a have a box you know which basically be a little bit more more information the, it was actually a very complex book. I'd like to think that the book um, is easy to use. And the fact is, it's so easy to use, the complexity of it is hidden. A lot of work went in. Because one of the key differences between Women's London and, say, Jewish London, which was my first book, Jewish London was very clear. You had Jewish East End, Jewish West End, Jewish City, Jewish Mayfair. With Women's London, one woman, her legacy 
could be all over London. So where do I position her? Um, or, an, or a theme, medical women, scientific women, where would I position them? So the book itself was quite, was quite complex in that, in, in that way. And a lot of the time was spent waiting for that eureka moment where I felt I'd got everything lined up. One of the other things that I take very seriously, and anybody that knows my, my books, or, or me for that matter, will know that I'm obsessed with images. And um, while contemporary images are very important, after all, it's a guidebook, i.e. people therefore need to know what they're looking at, I like context. I'm a social historian by DNA, as it were. And um, I like archive images. Often it really shows the difference. You know, the, the um, section on women in Westminster, for instance, really illustrates how much we've moved on through using archive images. Plus, you know, a few portraits. You know, what, do, what did the women look like? So sometimes it's nice to actually have, have a portrait. So the picture research was phenomenally time-consuming but phenomenally enjoyable and also very, very challenging. So how many images would you say are in the book? And uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you a very difficult question and tell me which, say, if you could mention one or two images for special mention and why they stand out to you exactly, you would say. Well, one image that I want to mention, actually, I'll be mentioning when I hopefully get a chance to talk about one particular woman because that was an image that was the most difficult image for me to arrange so if you'll bear with me yeah um, we'll come back to that it's about a strike so so when I was thinking about working women in the workplace actually and how and campaigning for 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 better rights and and pay um so if you'll forgive me I'd like to how about tell me a bit about the process from beginning to end once you sat down and decided I'm going to write this book it took you how long one year ten years I think one of the things to bear in mind about writing a book like this is because I'd already done so many of the walking tours and research, I had a massive amount, a phenomenal amount of information. But let me tell you, anybody who's writing a book, you can have masses and massive information, but you have to cut it down. And it's cut, 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 edit, edit, edit. So um, I would say the whole process, I'd, I'd done a lot of work beforehand, that's why I felt ready to write the book, but probably about 18 months, I would say, from start, from start to finish putting together the maps is very very complex you're writing the maps and putting lots of colored dots in and the cartographer doesn't have a clue about anything they you've just got to make sure your instructions are very very clear so writing a book you're using a lot of very different uh, skill sets the writing the knowledge in the writing is only one piece the visuals the aesthetics you know some pictures you desperately want to fit in they're just not the right size they're landscape but that page needs a portrait size so the kind of things you never think you're going to have to grapple with you 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 grapple with but as a project I think writing a book like this you've got to enjoy the project element you've got blank that's what you do you're told you've got uh, 65,000 words and you've got a year to actually write it and then you've got others, obviously the production time but you've got a blank space and it's a big gulp moment you've got to just start um, and then it's a bit like solitaire and a jigsaw um, and you've got to keep a clear head absolutely a clear head so let's move on to the woman you discovered while writing the book when the book was published the question I got asked most of all was who were the women you discovered when you wrote the book when I first got asked that question I thought well actually I wrote the book because I'd already discovered women and excuse me it's because I've met so many women I have so many people to write about that I'm writing the book and um, and then I realized actually no as I started walking around London and started thinking about 
features um, about specific types of, of women or, you know, or like I say, women in the workplace, artistic women, medical women. I actually did start to find, discover women I didn't know anything about. For me, that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I found them in the most weird and obscure ways. So I'm just going to highlight three. And I think what I'd like, I'd like you to get from this is you never know when you're going to discover something. You ne- just by walking around, just going about your daily affairs, talking to people, you never know who you're going to meet. So um, in no particular order. I do like art I, and, I, you know, and I like to visit art galleries and I, I like to discover new pieces. Anyway, I went to an art exhibition of an artist called Gluck who was going to be in my book. This is Hannah Gluckstein. She was a member of the one of the families linked to Lyons. If you haven't heard of the Gluckstein's, you might have heard of Lyons Tea Houses. So she came from a wealthy background. She could indulge her artistic world. She was an early cross-dresser. She cropped her hair, wore men's clothes, had a relationship with Constance Spry, which is very curious because Constance Spry is twin set and pearls, flower arranging lady. And I went to an exhibition of her work. And sorry anybody who's a fan of Gluck, the, the pieces didn't do anything for me. But while I was in the gallery, I saw an artwork, artworks going up the stairs. which I, And I didn't recognise the artist, I didn't recognise the style. But I knew this was my kind of style. And I was literally drawn up the stairs and I went into this exhibition of an artist called Ethel Gabin. Well, I'd never heard of Ethel Gabin, but I fell in love with her work. She did lithographs. Lots of women, languid women, thoughtful women, you know, just my kind of thing. And I, I, I was just taken back, spoke to the curator at great length about her. But then I started looking, there was other pieces by her. Done during the Second World War, she was an official war artist and she was, was commissioned to draw women at work. The lumberjills, you know, the lumberjacks called lumberjills, women collecting the rubbish, women um, taking the children, being evacuated. These were were working women doing work that had been done by men or the caring professions. It covered everything. Her work was amazing. I mean, I I just thought, Ethel Gabin, where have you been all my life? But even better, she lived in Hampstead. Well, this was a gift to me. I did walking tours of Hampstead. I had walked past her house numerous times not knowing that was where Ethel Gaban lived. So from that, from going to see an exhibition of Gluck, I discovered a new artist for myself, but one who I immediately knew I had to put in the book and one whose home I can stand in front of on my walking tours. And, you know, you, you can never underestimate the power of, of linking, I think. London's a big place and people... But actually dig down you've still got these small personal uh, stories so that's so lady. we have to be really brief now with the other two another lady i discovered was i went to the petri museum named after flinders petri a man a professor of egyptology at university college london very nice egyptology museum i go upstairs and in the tiny vestibule who do i see a bust of a woman why is there a bust of a woman not flinders petri well it's amelia edwards the museum wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the fact that Amelia Edwards was an Egyptologist. She had her own collection of bits and bobs from Egypt, from her excavations, and she funded the collection and funded the first chair of Egyptology at University College London. But why? Because University College London was the first uh, college to give degrees to women. So even when you go to a museum named after a man, you find a bust of a woman. It wasn't, wouldn't have been there without her. And and then you've got the link to University College London and the development of education for women. So it's all about linking and jigsaw. Oh, you're giving me goosebumps with oh, that. Let's oh, move on to go. the third woman. Well, this one, this goes back because I'm very old. And in, there was a very hot summer of 1976. I was doing my A-levels, 
Anybody that remembers 76 will remember how hot it was. To cut a long story short, in those days we used to take photographs on film. We used to send the film to a postage developer. You'd get the pictures back in the, in the post. There was a big uh, photographic processor not far from where I lived in northwest London called Grunwick in Dollis Hill. Most of the workers there, they were working very hard because people were going out a lot, lots of photos. A lot of them were Ugandan and Kenyan Asians who had had to flee Africa, but they actually emanated from Asia. These were professional, well-educated business people, but they were having to work in very uh, menial, underpaid positions. And in 1976, in that long, hot summer, they uh, went on strike. It, they, it, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I went to an exhibition about it because... I remember that summer of 76 very well. But when I went to the exhibition, on the poster was a woman with a clenched fist, and it was Jay Ben Desai. So I went to an exhibition linked to something I remembered from my childhood, but then I found out that actually that strike was one of the key leaders, was um, an Asian woman called uh, Jay Ben Desai. And this was a turning point, I think, for Britain to see Asian workers in a different light and an unknown world, how they were treated, the working conditions, the humiliation of how they um, how they worked, and so for me, I absolutely for in my trade union section, I'm, I have mentioned the Ford Ladies of Dagenham, really important, and the Match Girls of 1888. But I wanted to profile Joe Bendesai and the image strikers in saris. There's a wonderful painting of the women on strike and the supporters, the postal unions who supported them. That's the image. I desperately wanted to have in my book. It took me a long time to arrange it, but tenacity is my middle name. There was no way that picture was not going to be in the book. Is that the, the image you mentioned that you wanted to keep until later? Yes, absolutely. For me, for me, it's a fantastic image. When you look at it, it's done in a style I like, a very what you'd call um, naive type style of, of art. But you can see the women in saris. Uh, one of the newspapers dubbed them strikers in saris. Alliteration always works. But you will see their Dollis Hill, you'll see Dranik, you'll see the police. You really get that sense of cohesion and energy. For me, it was a, a very important strike. All right, so we're running out of time because, you know, with women, it's endless stuff to talk about. But let's move on now to the women you said you met and or found out more about via your loyal walkers. So if you could just tell us briefly who they are and then a snippet on each of them. So Mrs. Hughes, Minnie Lansbury and Rosalind Franklin. And now Mrs. Hughes is a fascinating lady. She was a suffragette, East, East London, Bow. And I was doing my tour, Batting Bells of Bow, alliteration again, everybody, always and a lady said to me, my great-great-aunt was a suffragette in this area. I wonder if you're going to mention her. Her name was Mrs. Hughes. I said, Mrs. Hughes? You mean Mrs. Savoy? Of course I'm going to mention her. And this lady said, you mean you've heard of her? I said, of course I've heard of her. She's in the tour. And But this lady uh, was doing a lot of family research. And basically, it's a very interesting story. The lady in question, the aunt... Great-Aunt Ginny. She was um, born Jane Major. She married a Mr. Savoy, became Mrs. Savoy, but operated as a Mrs. Hughes because a lot of husbands in those days were embarrassed by their suffragette wives. And so a lot of women actually used a pseudonym to protect their husbands, you know, from being ostracised. So it was a pseudonym, not like her maiden name. No, so Mrs. Hughes was her mother's maiden name. Her her maiden name was Major. But it's a lovely story. But one of the interesting things that Michelle found out, she found birth certificates, death certificates. She couldn't find the marriage certificate for her great-grandma. And to cut a very long story short, she wasn't a Mrs. Savoy at all. She and her husband, inverted commas, everybody, you can't see me, weren't married. 
they only got married in their 60s, a year before Mr Savoy died. And Michelle thinks that it maybe they knew he was dying, therefore they got married so that she would be a widow as opposed to being a common-law wife at the end of her life. So you never know what you're going to find out when you do a family research. Another lady, Minnie Lansbury. Minnie Lansbury is a lady I already knew quite a bit about. She's actually linked to Mrs. Uh, Savoy, straight Mrs. Hughes, because she also operated in Bow, and they both, she, Minnie Lansbury was the daughter-in-law of George Lansbury, a very important politician, Liberal politician, who was a great supporter of Mrs. Savoy, Strip Mrs. Hughes. Again, you get the linking. Um, so I knew quite a bit about Minnie Lansbury, very important suffragette and social worker, uh, local politician. But again, one of the ladies on my tours is related to Minnie Lansbury. And again, people are very generous. They invite me around. I see things linked to the people. And it really enhances one's knowledge and connection when you meet people who are related and, again, who want to share. And they've always got these extra little snippets that make the story more complete. Minnie Lansbury's importance in many ways is rather sad. She's important because very sadly she died at a young age, age 32, because her health had been compromised when she'd been in prison in 1921. And so she's one of the women that one meets historically through London whose promise was snuffed out in, in the sense that we don't know what else she could have achieved. But she why was, was she in prison? She was imprisoned in 1921 because she was an alderman in the London Borough of Poplar. And London Borough of Poplar, the mayor was George Lansbury, her father-in-law. She had married his, her, his son, Edgar. And the people of Poplar, and we're talking about the early 1920s, it was a very poverty-stricken area. Most people worked on the docks and in the railways. There was no money. And the way the rates were levied in London was that they had to pay the same rates. So London Borough of Poplar was levying the same rate, say, as Westminster, where people were typically richer. And George Lansby basically said, I am not levying those rates. My residents can't afford that. So he refused to levy the rates that were going to go to central London elements like police, asylums and whatever, which was, of course, against the law. So all the councillors were taken to court, found guilty and sent to prison. The men to Brixton, the women to Holloway. And Minnie Lansbury was one of them. And she caught pneumonia. And although she was only in prison for a relatively short time, her health was compromised and she died not long after release when she was just aged um, uh, 32. So she's important, um, A, because women were being put in prison. Uh, Two, she devoted her whole life up till then to helping people in, in different ways. She was a big supporter and friend, right-hand right man of Sylvia Pankhurst, you know, another very important woman of the of, um, East London, straight, straight the East End. And I sometimes think when somebody's life is snuffed out early, we'll never know what she could have achieved. And sometimes that keeps people important because you can contemplate what could have been. The other lady who I learned much more about was Rosalind Franklin. Now, Rosalind Franklin is very famous. She's known as one of the um, discoverers of DNA. She actually died on the very day I was born. So I've always had this connection to her. And when I started just researching her more, you know, it got more, you know, more pronounced. But again, when somebody's very well known and I'd done a lot of research on her and I, I knew her story uh, somebody that came on my walk is her cousin and uh, some, has since become a very good friend of mine and the important thing about that is when you read things in books and things you only know what you're reading it's really beyond wonderful when you meet somebody who knows the person you're talking about or knew them knew the person and can actually confirm that it's right or actually tell you, you know, it never was like that and it, it it's a reminder that whatever we read, we should never take anything for granted. You know, you must always double-check and double-check 
explore, ask questions, because when you meet people who really know the story, they'll tell you the real deal. Yeah, nothing beats personal insight and actual real connections. And of course, anyone who is a public figure who is known in, in public life, you know, that's one dimension of their personalities. And so to know, you know, or to get some access or insight from their loved ones, that obviously fleshes things out a bit. And also, I must say, when you do the walking tour, sometimes when I have members of their family on the walking tour, you know, at the end of it, I'm always so thankful when they say that, yeah, it was like that. I mean, can you imagine giving a tour and you're talking about something and they say, no, 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 it wasn't like that at all. So, you know, it, such things keep people like me on their toes. OK, so tell us anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up. Well, I think just before we end today, I, I always like to think that I'm ahead of the game. You know, I'm, you know, why not? I'm talking about myself and my book, so why not? But um, in the book, there's a feature about the Royal Albert Hall, but from the female perspective, not the proms, not the, not the, not the tennis, not Elliot Crapton, women in the Albert Hall, the um, votes women um, meetings, the establishment of the Central School of Speech and Drama. And then in 1970, when Miss World was on, we actually featured with an image, that was one of the images I chose, um, about uh, the women's liberation movement uh, basically disrupting the Miss World of 1970 when Bob Hope was on the stage. And um, as, as, I'm, as I'm speaking here, just recently the film has been released called Misbehaviour about that very event. And I just sat there. It's a, it's a lovely little film, actually, everybody. When um, If you get a chance to see it, do see it. And I just thought, you know what, Rachel? You were there first. That image is in the book. And, um, and that, it's those kind of things that, that give you a little... A little fuzzy good feeling inside. Rachel Tenacity Kolsky, thanks so much for being with us on The Workplace. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And that's it for today's episode of The Workplace, the radio program about how to get into, get along and get ahead at work, produced and presented by me, NND. Today's program was the penultimate in our Women's History Month 2020 series and the first of a two-part episode with Rachel Kolsky, the prize-winning Blue Badge London tour guide and author of Women's London. We were speaking about her book, Women's London, the women she discovered while writing the book, and other women who have made an impact on London and whom she discovered through people who have gone on her tours. Visit golondontours.com to connect with Rachel. Join me again in the next episode when we conclude the Women's History Month 2020 series here on The Workplace as Rachel Kolsky joins us again to talk about the plaques, statues and street names in London that memorialise women. And thank you so much for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure being in your company. As we close today... Let me extend wishes to you and yours to stay safe and healthy. And here's to hoping that you find new ways to keep working.